Welcome to DATCAST, the official podcast of the Design Automation Conference. We're here because design automation is something that happens year-round, not just for a week in the summer. Hosting the podcast, this is Eric Seligman from Cadence Design Systems, along with Rich Edelman from Siemens EDA. Hi, everyone. Hopefully you're all recovered by now from the conference. For this episode, we thought we'd share some of the highlights from the conference talks last month. We're going to start with the visionary talk by Mike Ello from Siemens. We're going to share some excerpts where he talks about where EDA is going in the next decade and about the evolution towards multi-domain virtual platforms and true digital twins. So um, I ran into Wally in the back before I came on stage and he looked at me and he said, wow, what has happened to Dak that you are on stage for a visionary? And I said, Wally, I am just the warm-up act. My job here is to get everyone comfortable in their seats, make sure you're drinking some coffee, waking you up a little bit. So when the real visionary comes on and presents ideas of great knowledge, you'll say, wow, what the hell was Mike talking about? But with that, let's jump into this. You know, it, it's interesting where we are today because our world is changing and semiconductors really are at the center of this change. And, and why I say that, there's been a number of events recently that have really increased and elevated the importance of semiconductors. First off, when you take a look at the pandemic, the pandemic was a major disruption to society. Right, and people re realize the fragility of supply chains out there, but the one thing that provided connectivity as everyone was hunkered down in their little isolation chambers was technology. Technology driven by semiconductors. On top of that, we see the evolution of a trade war going out there, and with that, you know, there's reinvestment going on and the potential for regional opportunities that are emerging. But I think what's really core to what's happening with this is nations are realizing that semiconductors are important to their society. And in this, semiconductors have become strategic. On top of that, now we see the evolution and the emergence of AI out there with the potential for more disruption than we've ever had in the past. And with that, the requirement for more design technologies, for more methodologies to address this, but what I see is an explosion of semiconductor content associated with that. And then lastly, we've been watching as society has demanded more uh, corporate responsibility from companies around sustainability. And companies are struggling with, well, how do I do this? How do I go and, and, and have sustainable practices but do that at a cost that makes sense? And I believe that semiconductors are at the center of how companies will evolve into sustainability. And so with that, you can see that semiconductors have become one of the primary drivers of our society because semiconductors in and of themselves are strategic. And if you don't believe me, you can take a look here at the amount of government investment in the billions of dollars over the past couple years in order to build out semiconductor infrastructure. So we have a dilemma right now. Society is demanding ever-increasing volumes of semiconductors, but what we've got is design activity is rising. Complexity is exploding. Schedule and, and, and costs are skyrocketing. Universities 
are not producing enough engineers, and the engineers that we have are retiring or looking for something else to do. So where do we go with this? What's the future look like? Oh, hi, Lipu. Wow, how are you? There is a requirement now to connect semiconductors to systems to the end products more than we ever have in the past. Semiconductors are part of an extended ecosystem, and when you take a look at the, the waves of innovation, the waves of innovation are coming much more rapidly, they are shorter, and they peak faster. But what's in this is the next wave of innovation that we're looking at, to me, doesn't look like innovation, it looks more like disruption. With AI, the potential for the disruption of end markets and turn everything upside down exists far more than ever did in the past. So how do you design smart, connected end products because of the complexity? It's really an ecosystem design of the future. And then lastly, what this means is multi-domain product realization is how we have to take a look at what we're doing in 2030. And so with that, you can take a look at software-enabled vehicles today where you have an automotive, you do a decomposition into the engine, into the ECU, into a piece of silicon. The design happens at the various stages. There's an integration upward into the chain of this. And any problems along the way are kind of fixed as they emerge. Well, the idea of software-defined silicon-enabled vehicles of the future requires that the linkages between all the different domains are far more dependent on one another than they have been in the past because changes you make in one domain has an implication on another domain. No longer can you do these things in abstract, you must do these things together. And that adds a level of complexity for how you have to take a look at design for the end products. So today we've got a world where semiconductors are a connected piece to a system, but they're independently connected. You know, usually we have these connections that are one way and they are open loop. So what does this mean today? Things are annoying. We can end up with a check engine light. You've got to take your car to a dealership because you can't fix it yourself because it's so darn hard. But in the future, you can imagine if you're not understanding how all the domains are linked to one another, we are posed for catastrophic results. And so how does industry adapt to this? How do we close the gaps? So my assertion is that semiconductors are in everything, but they are only part of the end product itself. And so with this, there's some requirements for future design as we take a look at this. People will always be the center of what we do, but we need to take these people and infuse them with AI in order to make them more efficient. Technology in and of itself, how do we shift left knowledge such that we can make decisions earlier that have implications downstream? And then lastly, you know, how are we taking a look at the methods associated with this end product design, really with a closed loop end product system design process that comprehends the interlinkages of all of the domains? Multi-domain system knowledge requires an ecosystem that can talk to one another in order to have predictable results at the outcome. Companies want predictability when they're spending time and effort on complex products. They want to know that when they're done, it actually works the way they intended. And so where we're headed into the future is enabling the true comprehensive digital twin. So digital twins exist right now. You have things associated with the mechanical and the manufacturing worlds that have been around for a very while. And here inside of the semiconductor world, we've had digital twins of our chips for years. 
But what was missing in this model was electronics, comprehending semiconductors, and comprehending software coming into this. This was the missing link. And so, coming to a quick end before you get to the person you've been waiting to see. You know, I'm just here to assert to all of you that semiconductors have become one of the primary drivers of our society. They are strategic. Nations realize that access to semiconductors is vital to the welfare of their society. I really believe this is a foundational shift. And product design must include comprehension of the multi-domain impact built on comprehensive digital twin. Lastly, the, the semiconductors themselves are part of a larger ecosystem. And so we must now plug into this because what happens here has an impact in the other domains. And then lastly, from EDA, what we must do is address the volume complexity and engineering challenges of the future with AI-infused, left-shift-left technology evolving into these multi-domain solutions. Next, we're going to hear some excerpts from Alberto San Giovanni Vincentelli's talk, Corsi Eric Corsi, Here We Go Again, where he discusses cycles of progression in science and technology and how our industry has been evolving towards multi-chip architectures and 3D ICs, along with the relationships between AI and EDA. And so without further ado, let me remind you of something that I said 20 years ago, which was about the history repeats itself, because we're going to use this theme uh, to discuss the advances in EDA and in general in semiconductor technologies. So I posited that uh, the way in which we progress in society, but also in science, is to go through three cycles, essentially, which is what uh, Giambattista Vico is an Italian philosopher of the 1600s, um, posited as being a general model for society. So the first stage of the evolution of society, and I would say also of science and why not EDA, is what is called the age of gods. And what that means is that when we don't understand something, then we always think that there is somebody else outside that is the cause of whatever happens to us. Then the second age is when uh, men start taking charge of what they need to understand to progress. And that is the age of the heroes, because it takes a lot of courage uh, to uh, face uh, problems that we don't understand well. And then finally, after we have uh, discovered things, and we tend to become conservative, so the age of a man, of a reason. So we start debating everything uh, that uh, uh, needs to be done. And uh, what uh, Vico said is that once you reach that stage, then you start all over again. And so you go back to the, to the situation where you don't understand, and so again you think that the gods are the reason for everything. Now, um, what happened in, uh, in semiconductor technology and also in EDA? So, well, if we look at the average number of transistors, it's been constantly growing per processor. And this is, uh, of course, the result of the Moore's law. Um, now, how did we cope with this complexity? Because we've always been challenged by the advances of semiconductor in EDA and said, well, help us cope with this problem. And so what kind of things did we do? Well, in my view, and that's the age of the heroes, um, in the 
period between 1975 and 2000, what we did is that we found the connections between abstractions, tools, and back to abstractions. And that yielded what I call uh, methodologies, freedom from choice. So if you look at all the kind of things that we have done, we always constrain the freedom of designers. We constrain the freedom of designers to use standard cells, get array for simplifying the layout problem. And we constrain the logic designer to use uh, synchronous designs. And why is that? Because with these constraints, we can map the problem, design problem, into a well-formed mathematical statement then, then we can solve with algorithms. Now, uh, the quest for this level of abstraction and the relative tools started in the 1970s, as I said, and we went from transistors to the gate to the RTL. And the last step that we have done is actually the uh, IP blocks-based design methodology where the blocks were large blocks uh, that contained uh, many transistors and had a very specific and large um, functionality. Now, since 2000, there has not been a radical transformation in the level of abstractions. We kind of got stuck there one way or another. And so I think that we, in this period, uh, since 2000, we were kind of getting into the age of man, reason. So incremental improvement, don't get me wrong, it's not that we have not done anything, but we built upon the past. So now, what has been happening since 2000? Well, we said before, is the IP-based design, and this actually was a very important step because it enables system companies to build their own version of uh, uh, semiconductors. And so this methodology has enabled people like Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Tesla to build their own design, which is great for us who are working in EDA because this means larger market, but also it's good in general for industry because you get much more performance out of your system by using semiconductors. And so that, as you can see, is a kind of a Lego block uh, uh, game in which you add different blocks and different uh, functionalities. And then you put it all together with some degree of uh, optimization if you use network on chip or other things of that sort. So this was an important evolution. We started in 2000, as we said before. Now. Um, this enables, as we said before, system companies to build their own chips. One example uh, that is kind of uh, um, interesting because a car company designed their own chip and made them become the leader in a particular sector. So if you look at what Tesla is, it's really an electronic company dressed up like a car. And in fact, they did design their own semiconductors and this brought them to do things that were not possible before. They also changed or revolutionized the architecture of the electrical uh, system of the car itself. Now you can see there that some of the blocks are NPU. What are the NPUs? Uh, they are the neural processing unit. And what does that do? Is an implementation of guess what? AI, right? So this AI world is going to be 
mentioned many times, as already mentioned uh, in the previous speak, uh, speech. But the most important thing that I would like to bring is uh, there is a, an evolution that is of great importance, which is the advent of uh, uh, 3D ICs. And so we know that 2D IC have limitations. The big chips that we've seen uh, from Tesla, but also from Amazon, from uh, uh, Apple, and so on, are characterized by a very large footprint. Now, when you have a very large footprint, we know that the yield is going to uh, be affected. Uh, also, if we think about the various devices, uh, look at uh, your watch. Every watch that you wear has got a chip inside, a processor that can be very powerful. Now, if you have to fit a very large chip in here, you are not going to have space for connecting it to the uh, user interface and so on. So there is a constraint that is also taking place in terms of the actual size of the chip themselves. And then, of course, if I have a, a unique chip, I have to compromise because I have to mix different functionalities. So I have to compromise the analog with the memories, with the digital functions. And that can be uh, worrisome, right? Because we don't exploit at best uh, the various technologies. So how did we cope with that in the past? Well, we did different chips. And then we plugged them onto a printer circuit board. Now, that is good, but it's not good because you lose performance and you lose uh, um, uh, power and uh, all kind of uh, matrix that you want to add. So a single chip is a good thing until you hit the boundaries, and that's what we are talking about. So we resort to what? Packages, advanced packaging of single chips. And so we end up with a constant progression, starting in 1980 with system in package of multi-chip modules. So is that uh, uh, coarse and recourse? Yes, it is to a certain extent. And in fact, I don't know how many of you remember, but in the 80s, it was a craze about multi-chip modules. There were many companies that were set up uh, to um, exploit this idea of not being bound to a single chip, but using different chips to implement their system. Now, um, unfortunately, all of these companies that you see there that were very interesting startup, in particular, I was involved with Richard Newton in NCHIP, that was a multi-chip module with uh, uh, a, a silicon substrate, they all failed. Not a single one has uh, stayed up. And why is that? because the advances in single-chip uh, designs were so strong and so compelling that the idea of putting several chips together in a package was inferior. And so that's the reason why. Now, so why now there is so much interest in, in these new ways of doing packages? Well, for one thing, they, uh, as we said, more slow is kind of slowing down, right? There's not much more room that we can use. Second, the fact that it is expensive. Uh, and so what can we do uh, to uh, yet not lose all the advantages of a single chip and yet 
coping with all the problems that a single chip has. And here came the idea of 3DIC, which is essentially silicon stacking, one, one chip on top of the other. Of course, if you do that, then you gain an additional uh, dimension, which is a third dimension, and so the compaction is still very great, good compaction. Not only, but you can even have improvement in performance because you exploit the third dimension to make things that are far away in a single chip to be close by, so that the delays that you have with interconnection is going to be better than if you have a single chip. So uh, this is a real reason why it's kind of a revolution. Now, we have a really a new way of building our silicon uh, products. And so verification is a key issue. And again, it was brought up before, is the lack of talent. So we don't have enough people to, uh, to cope with this problem. Not enough people with the right competence, I should say. And so these are some of the uh, um, titles of uh, newspapers and the like that point out that the oil of the future, the scarce resource of the future is people, is talent. And in fact, if we look at uh, uh, my university, University of California at Berkeley, now what happens is that we saw a decrease, a radical decrease in the number of electrical engineers, so people who know how to design chips, in favor of artificial intelligence. So everybody plus his brother wants to do artificial intelligence. And now the problem is we don't have enough people to run artificial intelligence or to put artificial intelligence in, right? And so now what is happening? Is happening that the large companies like Apple and so on are begging us, please guys, train people in this domain, right? <clears throat> so is AI a panacea of all these problems? So lack of talent, huge complexity, and all of that. So let's look at AI at 2023 DAC. So what do we have? 171 talks that are dealing with AI. Six keynotes, two panels, 24 sessions, and six tutorials. So this is a misnomer. This is not the Design Automation Conference. It's the AI Conference Applied to Design, OK? So change name, guys. All right. Now, did we see something like this before? The answer is yes, courses and recourses. So uh, first of all, let's define a few definitions. I am a professor. I love definitions. So first definition is artificial intelligence. Now, if you look at Oxford Dictionary, it's the theory and development of computer system able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence. So guys, all of us have been, since 1975, AI people, right? Because we have done designs, and design is typically of human, and we have done it automatically. So this definition means that anything that is automation is artificial intelligence. No wonder that everything, the word is artificial intelligence. Look at the definition. Now, second point, machine learning. So machine learning is actually algorithm supporting theory for making prediction and decision under uncertainty based on observed data. This is the best definition I've seen. It's given Michael, uh, by Michael Jordan, who's a very good friend of mine, colleague at Berkeley. 
who is considered to be the best guy in machine learning in the world. Now, he is kind of always go to the source of things, because if you talk to him, it's very clear what the mathematics behind machine learning is. It's no magic. We are not in the age of the gods, right? So let's try to be heroes, try to understand what the heck we are doing. So now, if we look at uh, the hierarchy of things, artificial intelligence, we said, is the word. So everything is artificial intelligence. A subset of, machine in of artificial intelligence is machine learning. Now, if you look at the papers here, 99% of the papers in this conference is about machine learning. You call AI, but it really is machine learning. Inside machine learning, 99% of the people refer to deep learning, which is yet another subset. So this is the kind of things that we have to keep in mind. Now, coursing-recoursing. Uh, we have seen the winters of AI before, right? So there have been two periods in, uh, in the history of uh, artificial intelligence where uh, funding completely disappeared. People were like, boo. If you say, I'm doing artificial intelligence, you will be dead, never got tenure, will never be promoted. You know, just go away. And why is that? Overpromise and underdeliver. Now, we have another spike that is going on, and we know that is taking a lot of uh, momentum. Is this going to stay or not? What do you think? It's sustainable. In my opinion, no, unless we change the way in which we look at artificial intelligence or machine learning better and try to insert what we know about the problems. You know, what you guys think, some of you guys think, is that, oh, I have a problem, throw it into a, a, a deep neural network, and boom, solution, right? Ain't going to be that way, and I'm going to try to demonstrate it to you. And so unless we think of something different, we are doomed to failure, because if you do that, you're going to have uh, accidents like what we have seen in autonomous driving. So, for our final excerpt today, Heike Real, IBM fellow, talked about how her company is working on making quantum computing a reality within the next decade. For the first time in history on the computation, it's that computing is branching because we are using quantum computers, which is a completely new paradigm of computing. And today, it's a very dynamic, exciting time because the first quantum computers exist, but it's also in a very early phase. But we are now at the stage where we can develop a quantum computing roadmap. And this quantum computing roadmap it will lead us towards quantum advantage. And that's what I would like to talk today about. Quantum advantage, we are not yet there. What is it? It's the time when quantum computers can compute a task which classical computers cannot do, or can only do at a, can, or quantum computers can demonstrate this quantum advantage where they calculate things faster, more precise, or things which can't be done by classical computers or at less energy, but important for a problem which is relevant to business. So before I dive deeper, I want to congratulate you about the 60 years of DAC, 
because I find it very, very impressive that already at the stage of 64, this has started. And it's amazing. But something else became 75 years in December, and this is a transistor. That transistor also has developed over many years in an unimaginable way. 75 years ago, we wouldn't have believed what is possible today. When in 1947, this transistor showed up, then a lot of engineering efforts, a lot of new breakthroughs have gone into developing the roadmap of semiconductors. And here you see the FinFETs, but then of course here IBM is also very active in this area of semiconductors, working on the nano sheet, which is currently introduced. And there is more to come because the next step may be to go to vertical nanowires transistors. And just to share with you, my first work after working on organic LEDs was to demonstrate the first vertical silicon nanowire transistor in 2005. A lot of things have, have happened, and today, of course, this is done on 300 millimeter and in high precision. So lots of things have been enabled by the semiconductor industry, and we have high-performance computing, but on the other edge, we also have mobile devices. But there is still one thing there are still intractable problems which classical computers cannot solve. And so these problems are very important. We use approximations. We learn how to use these approximations, and sometimes they work, but not always. And so these are four quick examples to show you that there are important problems which are relevant for our society and for our future, which being solved could help a lot. One is to improve nitrogen fixation by creating ammonia-based fertilizer. The Haber-Bosch process takes about 2 to 3% of the entire energy consumption in the world. If we could do this at room temperature and with low pressure, we could save a lot of energy. Or finding new catalysts for CO2 conversion. Or also in the, in the better financial models, and of course also in the medical area, there are many unsolved problems, like for example, new classes of antibiotics to be developed because of the emergence of multidrug resistance. So this is a new kit on the block, and this picture has become, for me, synonymous of quantum computing. But if you look at it, I'm sure all of you have seen it, it's actually mostly the fridge. So the processor is only the small square thing at the bottom on the copper block, and this is a quantum processor. And you see it looks very different because it's about quantum information. It's cooled down to 15 millikelvin so what you see are the different cooling stages. You see the microwave lines going down because we talk to this quantum processor, which is based on superconducting qubits, with microwaves in the range of 5 gigahertz. And it needs to be shielded because it's very sensitive. That's why it's cooled down to 15 millikelvin, which is very cold. But we have this technology already well under control. You know this very well. The bits, classical logic, you use it on a daily basis. And I want to show the analogon of the bits, which are 0 and 1, and the classical, classical logic circuit, which is a, a set of gate operations. And it's a unit of computation, and we use this analogy to talk about quantum, because now we have quantum bits. They are more complex, you see already in the picture, because a quantum bit is a superposition of two states, of the state 0 and the state 1, and A and B, these numbers are complex numbers which actually describe the probability of, uh, in which the probability of where you find the state uh, one or zero after your measurement. 
And then you also have quantum circuits. And these are a set of quantum gate operations on qubits, and we call this a unit of computation for quantum computing. So very different is that the scaling behavior of the performance of quantum computing, because now with these uh, qubits, actually they provide two to the power of n basis states for computation in the ideal way. So when we look at simulating the qubit behavior and how qubits interact, by a classical machine, then you see here what is needed from a memory point of view. And it actually increases very fast. With two qubits, 512 bits, but if you go to 35 qubits, you already need 550 gigabytes. And if you go beyond 100, then you come to numbers which are no longer possible to be simulated by a classical machine, not today and not in the future. So what do we want to do with quantum computers? and uh, this is shown here, it's not to replace classical computers, but it's to use them for things where classical computers may have a limit and where we can demonstrate this quantum advantage. So there are easy problems for classical computers. These we are not targeting. There are hard problems for classical computers, and one example, of course, is factorization, because that's not possible classically because you have an a increase of the complexity which is exponentially in your computation. And so with quantum computers, there are certain sets of problems, mathematical problems we're looking at. And one is simulating nature, that the core, like using the physics of quantum computing for solving problems where quantum physics is the base. This is in physics and chemistry and material science. Then mathematics and data with structure, like machine learning problems, ranking in the symmetric groups, or also factoring, which I mentioned before. But there are also other problems, like non-exponential speed-up can be achieved for sampling problems, for optimization problems, risk analysis, and option pricing. And you find actually examples of these mathematical problems in all the different industries. And for each of them, you get different uh, uh, speed-up. So for simulating nature, you can actually achieve a greater than polynomial speed-up. For the mathematics and database structure, you can achieve an exponential speed-up. And for, like for example, for quantum Andrew Carlo, it has been shown that a uh, quadratic speed-up can be achieved by using a quantum Monte Carlo algorithm. So our mission is to build up quantum computing systems and makes them useful for calculations and for the world. So we started many years back in exploring and researching quantum computing, and in 2016, we had the first time a five-qubit processor, and it actually was built in that lab or, or uh, measured and used in this lab. So you see here actually the fridge, which is now behind uh, that uh, white cylinder. You see a lot of electronic instrumentation, like a typical lab. And this was all done, you know, by physicists, actually the measurement, etc. So it's a typical physics lab. But since then, we have built up that system that we can bring it into a data center, that we can have it run by engineers and not really as a specialized quantum physicist. So over seven years now, we have these machines on the cloud. And meanwhile, there are currently there are more than 20 systems available through the cloud 
Already more than 450,000 users are working on quantum computers and doing research and developing with them. There are lots of partners we work with on quantum computing and looking into the algorithm, into the applications, and developing the applications for the different industries. And uh, also from the research side, by making this computation accessible in 2016, we have actually, I think, really uh, increased the dynamics in the field because suddenly people had access to quantum computers and can really utilize them and do research with them and develop them and test them and further, further advance and accelerate the development. So more than 2,100 publications are already done. So we build a full stack, and uh, starting from the qubits, quantum processor, components, wiring, the compiler, the error mitigation, error correction, software, the compute architecture, because you always have an interaction between the classical and the quantum computer, middleware, de delivering this through the cloud, and of course, further developing theory and algorithms and applications. Of course, what we just listened to were a few excerpts from much longer talks. You can find the full talks, as well as many other exciting talks from this past conference, on the DAC TV channel on YouTube. Just search for it there, or go to DAC.com and follow the links. Thanks for listening.